Well, it was a journey that went from bad to worse. It was a story told about a family named Joad who lived in the state of Oklahoma in the 1930s. Now, if you're familiar with that area and that time, there was a, a harsh drought that turned many of the farms in Oklahoma to dust. And that was what had come upon this family by the name of Joe. So they were faced with some very hard decisions. And they made the decision that they were going to have to load up all three generations of that family and make the trek to California in hopes for something better. Now, the grandfather of that family, uh, Grandpa Joad, uh, he didn't want to leave, and understandably so. He lived in that farm for generations, and they were about to leave it. Not long after the family had loaded up everything they had in that rickety old truck, he passed away and had to be buried on the side of the road. His wife met a similar fate. Before they made it out to California, she too passed away. She too had to be buried there on the side of the road. And then after they got to California in hopes that they would find something, employment, that would ease some of the burdens they had been facing, they didn't find what they were looking for. And instead, what they found was about 20,000 others who were looking to fill about 800 jobs. So this family was forced to move around from primitive camp to primitive camp, unliked by the locals, uh, the local authorities. The police were trying to push them out of, of every camp they, they found, uh, inciting riots and things like that from within. So this one family ultimately found themselves living in a train boxcar. On top of that, they're living there while a flood was coming. And a young woman among them, a woman by the name of Rose of Sharon, who had been pregnant, goes into labor and starts to give birth and births a stillborn child. And no proper funeral could happen. The only thing they could do was place that stillborn child in a cardboard box and let it float down the river. These rising floodwaters pushed them out of this boxcar and they made their way to an old abandoned barn where they found a starving man and his son living. And this is where John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath, comes to an end. No happy ending. No bright rays of hope that come through to give us some, some hopes for something better for this family. We only see this dark drape that falls down over them. It's when tragedy strikes. It's when the unknown happens. And we find ourselves scrambling to try to make sense out of everything. It's when a hurricane hits Florida. I just saw some pictures this morning of Mexico Beach that was just flattened by Hurricane Michael when it came through. It's when a a massive, hurric a massive earthquake hits Indonesia. I was talking to the Berglunds Friday night about what their kids have seen living in Indonesia. And about half the village that was struck by that earthquake is gone. Passed away. Buried. It's when a horrible crime is committed against you or someone you love. It can happen in a doctor's office. It can happen when you're struck with job loss. It's when in your life everything gets turned upside down and it leaves you grappling with hard questions. God, why? Why me? 
Why now? None of us are immune, whether it be death or a diagnosis. See, right now there's three people that are sitting in this auditorium, three kinds of people. Either you have uh, just been through a tragedy and you're looking at it in the rearview mirror, or you're in the middle of a tragedy right now. It's just struck you and you're suffering through it. Or you're about to get hit by a tragedy. You never know when it's coming. You never know what it's going to be. So then how does the Christian, believing that God is good, believing that he holds the whole world in his hands, endure tragedy? How do we go through it? This morning we're going to be walking into a tragedy. And not unlike that Jode family from Oklahoma, it will involve leaving a homeland because of a drought, only to endure circumstances that were far worse once this family gets there. The tragedy we're going to see is going to come from the book of Ruth, chapter 1. And we'll start out this morning reading Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Ruth 1, verses 1 through 5. And if you would, please stand with me as we read this passage. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land of Judah. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to live as a resident foreigner in the region of Moab, along with his wife and two sons. Now the man's name was Elimelech, his wife was Naomi, and his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were of the clan of Ephrath from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the region of Moab and settled there. Sometime later, Naomi's husband Elimelech died, so she and her two sons were left alone. So her sons married Moabite women. One was named Orpah and the other Ruth. And they continued to live there about 10 years. Then Naomi's two sons, Malon and Kilion, also died. So the woman was left all alone, bereaved of her two children, as well as her husband. You may be seated. We're starting a new series this morning on the book of Ruth. And this morning, I'm going to walk through this passage, chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. I want to put it in its context. I want to see what it meant then for those people at that time. And then after that, I want to walk through it uh, in sort of a timeless way. I want to pull out two timeless themes that come out of Ruth chapter 1. And then finally, I want to bring it home, and I want to look at two lessons I believe we can apply to our lives from Ruth chapter 1. So we'll look at it in its original context, in its timeless context, and then in the current context, the one that we live in, the now. So the book of Ruth, uh, it plays out sort of like a movie in about four acts. Uh, so it's laid out like a, like a movie or, or a novel would be. And in chapter one, we actually see three different scenes. So just, you can imagine the director clicks the, uh, whatever you call that thing, and the next scene starts. So doesn't um, chapter one as it moves through its three different scenes. And we get to the, uh, the first scene. It's actually what we just saw in verses 1 through 5. And I want to take a closer look at what's going on in verses 1 through 5. So there, in the first two verses, um, we unpackage them. And, and we see the story uh, unfolding. The author of Ruth is actually going to write this about the time of King David. So he's looking back at events occurred prior to him, the at least 40 to 50 years prior to him, 
uh, during this time of the judges. Uh, and by the way, the, the time of the judges, it was a very dark time in the history of Israel. This was from about 10, uh, 1350 to 1055 B.C. Again, King David will come on the scene about 40 years after that. Um, we know that the author of Ruth lived around the time of King David because he's going to mention the genealogy of David at the end of the book. So I was, like I was saying, these were dark times in Israel. The judges were those who were like chieftains of a given area that were raised up as leaders who were called on to judge between differences that occurred between people. And that was their role. And this, is, this period of time is sort of summarized in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They were going after and following other gods in Israel. Now, God had made a covenant with the Israelites. He said, if you remain with me, if you continue to follow me and worship me, I will continue to be my God and you will continue to be my people and I will bless you. He said, if you don't do that, I'm going to curse you. That's from uh, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, blessings and curses. So according to Ruth 1.1, there's a famine happening. And it says, a man from Bethlehem, he picked up his family and he moved to this land of Moab, a man named Elimelech. His name actually means my God is king. Now, the, the text indicates he was like the only one that did this. It was a man from Bethlehem took off and moved his family to Moab. Now, in all likelihood, this famine going on was a result of Israel's disobedience. So this was a judgment that was going on in Israel. So he picks up and he moves out as this judgment of God is being exacted on Israel through this famine. And you've got to understand that Israelites were no fans of Moab. They did not like Moabites one bit. They had a, a, a sordid history with these people. Uh, Moab, the very first Moabite, Moab himself, uh, was actually the product of a relationship with Lot and his oldest daughter. If you remember the story of Lot fleeing the land, uh, he and his oldest daughter had this child named Moab. So it was born out of this incestuous relationship. There was also an incident of the uh, Moabites resisting the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt, and they were coming into the land of Moab. They were resistant to them. So there's other incidences that happen. Um, Israel just didn't have a single good interaction with Moab. And that fact alone is going to make the next events even more remarkable. So keep that in mind. And then moving on to verses 3 through 5, um, the tragedy only continues to fall uh, even more. And the story becomes more like the grapes of wrath. So after moving for what they hoped was going to bring them a better life, things get worse. First, Naomi loses her husband and there in verse 3. Um, it was his idea to move the family to Moab. Nowhere does it say that Naomi had any say in this. She was going along with what her husband had insisted on doing. And then he dies, and he's also going to be buried there in this foreign land. Now, that was, uh, that was like a punishment for an Israelite to die and be buried in a foreign land. That comes from Amos 7. And then there were her sons. Her sons um, were probably sick when they were born because their names literally mean weakly and sickly. 
I'm very thankful I got named Chad. <laughs> so they're probably born with some kind of an affliction. Um, so Naomi, she's now been widowed. And then on top of that, these, her two sons, weakly and sickly, they marry Moabite women. That was a direct act of disobedience because the Moabites were worshiping foreign gods. God was very specific in giving instructions to the Israelites, don't go intermarrying with, with people of other lands that worship foreign gods. Now, Naomi, as the leader of the family at that point, she should have forbidden that. But she didn't. So, in addition to that, in verse 4, we see that after 10 years of marriage, um, there were no children born. Both women were barren. Another blow to this family from the hand of God. Then finally, this climactic blow in verse 5. Both of her sons died. Now, the text makes this uh, as grievous as it can be because notice how it states it. Naomi's two sons, in some versions it says her children, died appealing to this this maternal figure losing her kids. So, like that family we first spoke of, having to watch that cardboard box float down that river with that stillborn child inside, this is where we find Naomi. The darkness has fallen all over everything. There's a black drape that falls, and scene one is now complete. The curtain then rises again for scene 2, verses 6 through 18. And what we find in the middle of the stage are three women weeping, clinging to each other. So now what? There's this, this death and this loss. What are they going to do? Naomi and her daughters-in-law uh, are facing this intense crisis. They have a present without men. They've got a future without hope. Men were the ones at that time that went out and earned a living for the family. They were the security, and it's all gone now. <coughs> There's a conversation that's going to ensue that is detailed. And the narrator is not going to take a lot of space to describe the conversation that's going to happen between, among Naomi and her daughters-in-law. So we get to verse 6, and we see a spark of hope. It says, So she decided to return home from the region of Moab, accompanied by her daughters-in-law, because while she was living in Moab, she had heard that the Lord had shown concern for his people, reversing the famine by providing abundant crops. So there are four graces that immediately come to her following all this death and this tragedy. First, she gets the news while in Moab. Then there was no internet, there were no phones, there were no newspapers. Someone delivered this good news to her. So she got the good news. And then second, it says the Lord showed concern. God had not forgotten about them. Uh, by the way, it can feel that way sometimes, can't it? It can feel that way sometimes, that, that God is, is somehow not watching, that He somehow isn't present. I'm sure these Israelites and Naomi were feeling that. Where is God in all this? But He never forgets about us. Then third, it's for His people. It says he did this for his people. The rains came for his people. He had not forgotten the covenant that he had made with Israel. Then fourth, it says an abundant crop was provided. So the reader then is seeing the providential hand of God entering into this story, 
And he's setting the stage. He's setting the stage for things to come. And then in verses 7 through 13, the, the conversation continues with Naomi and her daughters-in-law. And she's showing them a lot of really tough love. No doubt, having lived in a foreign land, she knows how these two, Noah, these two Moabite daughters-in-law are going to be treated if they go to Israel. They're going to be looked down upon. They're not going to find husbands. So from her perspective, as an act of love towards them, she implores them, go, don't go to Israel. Go back to Moab. And then the last part of verse 13, she says, No, my daughters, you must not return with me, for my intense suffering is too much for you to bear, for the Lord is afflicting me. Have you ever known someone in that place? Have you ever known someone where the bitterness was so severe, the suffering was so severe, that they really just couldn't even be or function in a relationship? And maybe there was a time when you were that way, that your own intense bitterness, bitterness was going to be too much for someone to bear. That's where Naomi is. Then she takes all her pain and loss, and she wads it up, and she throws it directly at the feet of God himself. And by the way, she's not wrong. God is behind this. But notice that she, made, she, she makes no mention of the sin of the people that caused the famine in the first place. No mention of the sin of her children. Only this acknowledgement that everything was from God. And then we continue. And in verse 14, we see a difference arising between Orpah and Ruth. Orpah is going to pursue the natural course. She hears Naomi, and she, she says to herself, you're right. It's going to be too hard in Israel. I've endured too much. I'm going to go back to my homeland of Moab, but not so much with Ruth. Something different is rising up in Ruth. She is going to swim upstream. And then she says this with this dogged determination. She's heard everything that Naomi's had to say. And this is what she says starting in verse 16. But Ruth replied, stop urging me to abandon you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will become my people. Your God will become my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I do not keep my promise. Only death will be able to separate me from you. Now, you may have used that in your own wedding ceremony. Uh, a lot of couples do. My wife and I did. Um, she's making a, a, a stark, self-sacrificial statement. She's abandoning every source of security that she would have had. Uh, besides being a poor widow, um, she, she's losing her native homeland, her people. She's turning her back on her own gods to follow the God of Naomi. And with that, for the first time, Naomi's left speechless. She doesn't even know what to say to this. So the two of them will make the journey back. And again, the curtain falls. That's the end of scene two. The curtain comes up again 
in scene three, starting in verse 19, where they've returned back to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem. It throws the village of Bethlehem into an uproar. They can't believe who they're seeing, and they can't believe the condition that she's in. One commentary referred to her as being a destitute old hag at this point. And we pick it up. And they said, Naomi, is this you? And she said, don't call me Naomi. She said, I'm bitter. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the sovereign one has treated me harshly. I left here full, but the Lord has caused me to return empty-handed. Why do you call me Naomi, seeing that the Lord has opposed me? And the sovereign one has caused me to suffer. And then with those bitter words, this bitter outburst from Naomi, there at the end of the chapter, again the curtain falls. And we're at the end of Act 1 of the book of Ruth. With a very, very bitter woman. So we talked about this passage itself. And I want to now go through it and, and pull out some timeless themes that come up in this first chapter of the book of the Ruth. And the first one is something called chesed. Would you all just say that word with me once? Just say chesed. chesed. Oh, you did that very well. You did very... If you say that correctly, something should fly out of your mouth and hit the back of the head of the person in front of you. Okay. <laughs> it's got that, that chach. You hear it a lot in Hebrew. You hear it a lot in Arabic as well. And it's a very difficult word to describe, this word hesed. Chesed, yes. Um, it, it can't be captured really in one English word. This is a strong relational term that wraps up in itself an entire cluster of concepts. All the positive attributes of God. Love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness. In short, that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to the one who expresses it. It's a totally self-sacrificial kind of a love. It's one that we are all dying for in the deepest parts of our heart. So it's this, this hesed that comes up. We see it crop up in verse 8. Uh, when Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Listen to me, each one of you to return to your mother's home. May the Lord show you the same kind of devotion that you have shown to your deceased husbands and to me. This was a high, high compliment that Naomi extends to her daughters-in-law. And you see it in Ruth. You see it in Ruth and this determination to follow Naomi. Naomi could not have painted a blacker picture of what life was going to be like for her in Israel. And yet... She is going to walk with her to Bethlehem, hand in hand. We see it throughout the book of Ruth. Let me ask you something. Do you have a friend like this? Do you have someone that has extended to you chesed? I've seen this happen before. Actually, at my previous church back in, in Charleston, I worked a lot with the older folks in the church, and, and there were was, there was some women there uh, who were widowed or they were never married, didn't have any children, they had no family. And time and time again, I would see a best friend of theirs, after they'd had a major surgery, take them into their home and say, I'm going to care for you until you get better. That is chesed. It's when, 
It's when a soldier throws himself on a grenade to save his comrades. This is what a parent expresses to her child or his child. Is this, this love that has no end as far as what it will do for someone else. This is the love that God the Father extended to us in sending His Son to die for our sins. And that grace and that forgiveness is available for you today if you'll just believe and trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. The second theme concerns the sovereignty of God. And God's sovereignty, it's, it's never really easy. Uh, it, it means that God himself is in sovereign control over all things, uh, all the universe. And Naomi recognizes this. As a matter of fact, there's three things that she's sure of in this passage. She's sure that God exists. She's sure that God is sovereign. And she's sure that God has afflicted her. She's positive of those three things. Now, one of the problems that Naomi's having She's forgetting a story that happens back in the book of Genesis that she would have been familiar with. It's the story of a guy named Joseph. Now, you may remember the story of Joseph and his coat of many colors that his father gave him. His brothers became jealous. They, they threw him into a pit. They actually sold him into slavery. And they, they, they lied to their father about it. And horrible things happen while Joseph is in this, this slave state. Um, there, there's an adulteress that frames him and, and puts him in prison. Um, it was his brothers that sold him into slavery. He had every reason to say with Naomi, the Almighty has dealt with me bitterly. He had every reason to say that. But he doesn't. He kept his faith, and God turned it all for his personal good and for Israel's national good. And the key lesson there is Genesis 50, 20, where it says, and this is, uh, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. Here's the story of Naomi and Ruth. Um, we see their sufferings and, and, and the reasons go beyond them, but they don't know why they're suffering. It's us being able to look back into this story that maybe we can get some guidance on our own suffering. Um, we get this glimpse of God's plan. And with it, we can have some confidence that our own suffering is also playing out on this stage called life that you and I find ourselves in. You know, it's easy to talk about God's sovereignty when everything's going great, right? God is sovereign. God is good. But what happens when life gets turned upside down? Is it easy to talk about God's sovereignty then? Pain, difficulty, and tragedy, they're all part of God's plan for the Christian life. Uh, it, it's part of His sovereign design. I, I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. He said, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Tozer is recognizing that pain is part of the Christian walk. No part, Old or New Testament, is going to, to tell us that affliction is not part of life. So, uh, I'd like now to, to provide you two lessons here, two lessons I believe that we can apply to, to everyday life. 
um, perhaps to a situation you're finding yourself in. Um, number one, don't ever let your past take away your hope for the future. Don't ever let your past take away your hope for the future. Consider the redemption that's going on in this story. I told you that, that both uh, Ruth and Orpah, these Moabite women, should never have been married into the family. They were Moabites. God had strict laws against this. So it was sin that actually brought her in to this, to this family, to Naomi's family. That makes it doubly astonishing that she's going to be an ancestor of both King David, that King David is going to come through this lineage, and ultimately, Jesus Christ himself. So you see the redemptive power of God in the story of Ruth. In Psalm 34, 19, it says, Many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, what does that mean? It means that God always has a purpose for affliction in the life of the believer. It's never without purpose. Now, you may be saying to me, now, Chad, wait a minute. Are you saying that that sin that I committed is, is, is not going to prevent God from me serving Him? That's exactly what I'm saying. That don't let a sin or some mistake you made prevent you from serving God now. We're all sinners, right? I mean, we've all messed up. It blows my mind I get to be the pastor of a church. Your sin doesn't disqualify you. Don't let it rob you of a hope you have to serve God, to get married. Don't give it power. So first of all, uh, don't let your past take away your hope for the future. And second, know that God is always working for your good. His, his works and His purposes are always for the good of His people. In Romans 8, 28, it says, And we know in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Even though right now you may be get second guess, I'm not sure God is working in this. Yes! He's always working in relation to our existence. He was working on your drive in here this morning. He'll be working on your drive out of here, on what you do this afternoon. He's working in what we're doing. He's involved. So then how does the Christian endure this suffering? I'd like to sum it up in this one statement. Endure tragedy by suffering with a purpose. Know that your suffering is never without purpose. I love this uh, blog by Randy Alcorn where he discusses why God allows suffering in the lives of his people. And I'd like to close with this. He writes that mountain climbers could save time and energy by just taking a helicopter to the summit of the mountain. But their ultimate purpose is conquest, not efficiency. Sure, they want to reach a goal, but they desire to do it by testing and deepening their character, discipline, and resolve. God could create scientists and mathematicians, athletes and musicians, but He doesn't. He creates children who take on these roles over a long process. God doesn't make us fully Christ-like the moment that we're born. Rather, born again. He conforms us to the image of Christ gradually. And he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, And we 
who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. In our spiritual lives, as in our professional lives, and in sports and hobbies, we improve and excel by handling failure and learning from it. Only in cultivating discipline, endurance, and patience do we find satisfaction and reward. And those qualities are most developed through some form of suffering. It's part of God's plan. It's part of God's sanctification of us that we for a little while would endure suffering during our time here on earth. Please pray with me. Lord, we don't understand. Um, we don't understand why things happen the way they do. Uh, we don't understand uh, the suffering that you choose to bring into our lives. Lord, but we trust you. And we trust that our suffering is never without purpose. And we trust that you are working in us and through us and through the pain and through the tragedy and through the hurt. God, I lift up those people right now who are in the middle of a tragedy, who are suffering. God, I pray that you would give them patience. I pray that we as a church would come alongside them and show them the kind of chesed that you found us. Lord, help us as we leave here today to keep our eyes fixed on you and to set our mind on things above and not things here below. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Peace be with you. Thank you so much for being here today.